This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. The time for empty talk is over. The ECB is ready to do whatever it takes. Because Brexit means Brexit. Outer Blue by Amundi. Hello, welcome to the Blue Conversation of Financial Talk on Geopolitics at Amundi. I'm Jean-Jacques Barberis, your host today for this discussion on the day after Brexit and its impact on British economy and EU implications. For this conversation, I'm very happy to welcome today Sir Simon Fraser, former and permanent secretary at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Hello, Simon. Thanks a lot for being with us today. Jacques Keller, Head of Global Bonds, and Tris Romperrier, Senior Economist at Amundi. So, I would like to start this conversation by a little reference. This year, in France, we celebrate the anniversary of the death of Charles de Gaulle, and a wonderful biography had just been written by a British, Julian Jackson. And there is in this book a very nice quote of Churchill to de Gaulle in one of their famous fights in 1944, which is, Britain will always choose the open sea if it has to choose between the open sea and the continent. So in a, we can say now that the choice has been made uh, since three days Uh, UK is no longer a member of the European Union legally, but have things really changed? Maybe not that much yet. Uh, what are the impacts of this situation? And so this is what we're going to discuss today, exploring three areas, the impact uh, of uh, Brexit uh, at the moment, what to come and the impact on Europe. And I think this conversation is going to be extremely lively as we had the first, I would say, statements and documents both presented by the British government and the European Commission this very day on the future negotiations of the trade arrangement between the UK and the European Union. So maybe I would like to ask Simon the first question, uh, maybe as a reminder, can you explain us a little bit what happened over the last week with regards to Brexit and where are we at the moment? Yes, thank you very much. Uh, and it's good to join the call. And um, now we've chosen the open sea, I hope we're not going to drown in it. That is the task ahead. Um, so what has happened? Well, um, as you mentioned, Jean-Jacques, we have, the UK has now legally, formally left the European Union. The Withdrawal Act has passed, and as of last Friday evening, we are no longer in the European Union. Um, however, as we all know, in practical terms, uh, that doesn't change anything because of the transition period, which lasts until at least the end of this year, during which current uh, EU rules and regulations continue to apply in the UK. The only difference, therefore, being that the UK is not at the table in making decisions about the future arrangements. And, of course, a, a joint commission, a joint committee is going to be set up uh, to um, uh, monitor and um, give opinions and judgments on any issues which arise during that transition period that has not yet been established. So we are now in a sort of limbo Uh, and um, in the UK, uh, there have been, of course, reactions on both sides to this. Some people very pleased, some people very unhappy. Uh, and we are now beginning to think about uh, the next steps. And, of course, that means what is the negotiation going to be over the next 11 months on the future relationship, both the economic and trade relationship, but also the wider aspects of the UK's relations with the European Union and its member states. 
Uh, and that is the task ahead, and that is what the documents that have been published today begin to sketch out for us. Yeah, thank you very much. So, so far, no change, but limbo is an interesting concept because it's neither the purgatory, neither heaven, neither hell. Um, but nevertheless, uh, we already can see some market reactions uh, on what happened uh, three days ago. So uh, maybe, uh, uh, Jacques, I'm going to turn uh, on your side for this. Can you tell us what have been the market reactions so far? And actually, I understand that there are market reactions at the very moment where we are talking uh, immediately. Yes, indeed. I mean, the uh, the the, uh, the cable, the uh, dollar uh, sterling uh, cross is just defending the kind of 130.15 level as as we speak. Obviously, digesting uh, the 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 salvos put out by both the UK uh, and the EU side in terms of what their starting position in the negotiations will be. And I, I, I guess it kind of puts the market moves, um, the recent market moves, in the context of the events, you know, since since the election. I mean, UK assets um, have have not been trading anywhere near fundamentals uh, since that time, and, and actually prior to that, they've traded more on on, on the sentiment and uncertainty, and and, and today is uh, clearly uh, no exception to that. Uh, you know, obviously on the uh, on the 12th of December we had um, positive news and a reduction in uncertainty being put back into the market, and if you just look at the the 10-year UK gilt as a uh, as a telltale sign of that, you know, we, we had them at trading roughly 80 basis points uh, in, you know, from the 12th of December into the end of last year. Um, we then uh, obviously uh, had uh, the, the comments into the beginning of January uh, where both Mr. Javid and Mr. Johnson uh, started to release to the press tensions in terms of what they were intending to uh, propose as a starting point in terms of their negotiations. And, and we saw a sharp downward move, again, on the 10-year the gilt from about 80 basis points down to, to, to around 50-so um, to around 50 so, so basis points. And, and since that point, uh, I'd say this kind of mid-January point, we, we mix in the Bank of England. Uh, and, and the Bank of England um, was largely expected yesterday, uh, the day before yesterday, to, to cut interest rates. In fact, it was, it was nearly uh, fully priced for, for a cut yesterday. And they deferred that cut, you know, seven to two, uh, to hold off and to observe some of the marked improvements that they'd seen in the survey data uh, to see whether it would come through in, in, in the hard data. And we had a bit of um, uh, bit of a bounce uh, with 10-year yield bouncing up to about 54 basis points. But what's interesting is not only I'd say the the, the impact on on fixed income markets, it's equally on sterling, uh, British pound sterling, most notably relative to the U.S. dollar. Uh, we all remember that you know the 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 sterling bounced up to about 134 in the post-election period on the euphoria that some uncertainty had been taken out of the market. We've since been kind of trading sideways in a range of between this 130 to 133, let's call it, uh, level. Uh, the Bank of England, um, the, the, the day before yesterday, we saw it pop up to 132 uh, intraday. But then again, as we, as we started in the comments, uh, it's back down around 131 again today. And again, uh, fundamentally, is UK growth and inflation, you know, as, as judged by the 10-year uh, worth 80 cents, um, is the sterling's fundamental value 
in terms of, uh, I'd say, its currency crosses relative to the U.S. dollar and the euro at 131 and 118. Uh, at least on the FX side, that seems to be a bit closer to fair. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it, it is the uncertainty and the exchanges uh, in between, I'd say, the EU and the U.K. that, that are, are dominating the, the, the movements. Um, so, yes, a, a fair amount of volatility on both FX and fixed income markets. Uh, we don't manage equities out of the office here, but if you were to plot the FTSE 100 on top of the sterling moves, uh, you, you would find a very similar uh, risk-on, risk-off type of movement during the same period of time. Yeah, so, in a way, uncertainty is still there and continues uh, after what happened uh, three, uh, three days ago. So, maybe we can turn uh, again to Simon to discuss a little bit what is going to happen. So, now that the Brexit bill has passed the UK and European legislative hurdles, yeah. what should we expect in the coming month? Uh, and I know this is quite breaking news and fresh news, and maybe we didn't have have the time to have an in-depth look into the documents that were produced today. But I think, uh, Simon, it would be great for you to give, uh, that you give us uh, your views uh, yeah. on the document that, were, that was published by the British government uh, and also by the European Commission. Yes, okay. Well, I mean, I think the thing to say um, as background to this is that uh, quite a lot of people were saying after the election that Boris Johnson having got such a big majority, would use that opportunity to face down the Brexit hardliners and to go for a softer Brexit and to extend the transition period. Um, I'm boasting a bit, but on election night I said that is wrong. Uh, he will do exactly the opposite uh, because the, the political message he will have got from the election and from the fate of Theresa May is he needs to keep moving and he needs to demonstrate delivery. And I think you're seeing that coming true. So. Um, there is a very clear uh, move in this government, as reflected in today's paper, to push for what would be called a relatively hard Brexit, based on quite a thin and arm's length economic relationship, based on a free trade agreement as between third countries, um, stepping clearly outside the single market and clearly outside the customs union. And I think it's really important to understand that the people around Boris Johnson believe in this. Uh, this government at the top of it has a group of people who are fundamentally uh, anti-EU and who see this as their opportunity to drive for something very different. And I think that people in Brussels are having difficulty in absorbing that fact. They almost can't believe it. Uh, and there's been a sort of mismatch. Uh, and I think this is a very important um, political fact to bear in mind. So when you look at the British statements today, it is saying very clearly uh, that um, the uh, relationship should be based on a free trade agreement um, uh, such as with the EU has with uh, Canada. So the main elements of the relationship will be a comprehensive free trade agreement covering substantially all trade, that's standard WTO language, an agreement on fisheries, an agreement to cooperate in the area of internal security, together with a number of more technical agreements covering areas such as aviation or civil nuclear cooperation. These should all have governance and dispute settlement arrangements appropriate to a relationship of sovereign equals. Now that is, a, that is actually a thin uh, deal between the UK and the EU, which is basically not an awful lot more than the sort of bare-bones deals that were being discussed 
in the event of a possible no-deal Brexit last year. So that is the level of the British ambition. Now, if you put against that the rather longer document that the European Commission has published, which I haven't had time to read in detail, but which my colleagues uh, here in my company have been looking at, they say that the uh, Commission document is a rather, looks like a slightly more generous offer in terms of market access, uh, anticipating a closer type of relationship. And there you have that possible mismatch of expectations which I mentioned at the beginning, which I think could cause quite a lot of tension and disruption in the negotiations as we go forward. Thank you very much. No, but it's interesting because uh, it shows that the global Britain agenda may be the one that will be clearly followed by the British government. And this is something that so far was understood, uh, I would say, as marketing in Brussels, but that may have, I would say, very true consequences uh, on the type of deal that can be passed uh, between... Uh, well, it is UK. possible. It, it yeah. is possible, of course, and we have to take into account that this is partly the beginning of a negotiation and negotiating tactic on the British part. But I just want to underline one point, which is I think it would be an unwise assumption to assume that that is necessarily the case. I think that um, we mustn't underestimate the sort of sentiment and the nature of the government we now have in this country. Yes, yeah, so something that would be fundamental and not tactical. To be, uh, to, be, yes. uh, to be clear. Uh, Tristan, what are your views uh, on that? So uh, I presume that you had the time to read, digest, swallow, understand all the documents that were produced today in the last two hours. So can you tell us uh, a little bit uh, on uh, what you think uh, what will happen? Uh, and uh, can you elaborate a little bit on what Simon was saying? And also, uh, based on the different scenarios... Because at the end of the day, if a negotiated Brexit ends with a hard Brexit type of negotiation, uh, by definition, the consequences on the British economy are quite different. So if you can remind us also, what is the spectrum uh, of your hypothesis of impacts vis-à-vis -vis the British economy? Okay, uh, thank you. So I can only agree with uh, with Simon's uh, inter interpretation. Uh, obviously, the initial opening position by the British is quite uh, hawkish, and they seem they announced that they will be seeking quite a thin deal, essentially uh, a free trade agreement, uh, and they will, of course, privilege regulatory autonomy uh, above all. Uh, regarding the EU, uh, I note that maybe uh, some of the, the interpretation that can be made of the e EU document is that uh, under some terms it is not as uh, hawkish as was uh, initially, as could be initially thought. Uh, I, I see, I have noted, and other people have noted, that while uh, the EU uh, gave a lot of importance to the notion of level playing field, this is on what the EU, this is what the EU had communicated on uh, previously, the details on how this is interpreted on the document that do not really translate level playing field by regulatory uh, alignment and uh, there is there is scope for some uh, thinner level uh, playing field that would simply mean that there should be no regression on uh, social environment and uh, tax uh, matters so in this way there could be a bit more scope for bringing the position slightly closer together than uh, was initially thought. But this is just one uh, aspect. It, it is true that uh, overall it will be uh, the, the, the goals uh, that are sought by both parties are uh, uh, still uh, far apart. Of course, obviously, there's also some part of muscle uh, flexing at the beginning of the uh, negotiation. 
Now, regarding what we believe will happen, uh, our scenario at Amundi is that uh, there will finally be uh, a deal at the end of 2020 and that there will not be this major trade shock. That's the worst, not the worst uh, risk scenario that uh, EU and U EU to UK trade should fall back under a raw WTO regime at the beginning of next year when the transition period uh, expires. We believe that some form of a deal will be achieved. And uh, even though I, I also share the, the, the view of Simon regarding the, the, the genuine will of the uh, British government to uh, move apart from the to, to move to the uh, to the open sea, uh, we still remember that during the the negotiation at the end of 2019 for Brexit itself, actually Boris Johnson proved um, in some ways more pragmatic than uh, than could be fit. His tone was of course harsh, but we consider he finally backtracked on some key aspects of the negotiation, especially very much accepting the principle of uh, border checks in the Irish Sea, which had been before uh, a red line of the Theresa May government. Hence, a bit this behind again the harsh tone, more pragmatism than, uh, could, uh, than, than, than could be feared. And we believe that this will again uh, be the case at the end of this uh, negotiation. It does not mean that the negotiation is not going to be tough. It does not mean that at some point there will be fears of, an, of that other Brexit cliff at the end of 2020. But our central scenario again is that there will be an arrangement. What could that arrangement uh, be like? Probably some uh, probably could be after all that despite the very short delay it is possible to negotiate a free trade deal at least for goods or it could be some mix of a deal for some uh, sectors and some continuing transition arrangements for uh, other uh, sectors. We also note regarding the negotiation that they are at least under at least two political aspects things look a bit more simpler than in the previous negotiation. First, there is a majority, uh, a, a parliamentary majority in the UK. Therefore, we are not going to have this uh, rogue situation where the, the, British can, the British government can agree to something and that it is not validated by parliament. And on the EU side, uh, we are going to give a lot of importance to the fact that uh, there, is, there can be no hope now that the UK can remain in the EU. For EU negotiators during the Brexit negotiation itself, there could always be the hope that uh, at the end of the day, Britain would remain in the EU. And therefore, this could be a counterproductive incentive not to offer the British uh, a, a, an acceptable deal. Of course, this situation does not uh, exist anymore. So in, so in some ways, things are more straightforward. I could also stress the fact that it's not that trade deal is not fully comparable to other trade deals signed with uh, other third parties as we are starting from an initial previous position of free trade and regulatory alignment, which was obviously not the case for a trade deal with other countries. So again, we believe the negotiation will be difficult, but our central uh, scenario with majority probability is that of some arrangement that will either uh, prevent or at least mitigate the trade shock at the end of uh, this year. Now, when it comes to our views on the British uh, economy, uh, in, in a word, it's not in a sentence, it's uh, not too bad. Uh, we, we, we stress the fact that some of the recent disappointing indicators actually related to periods before the UK election and before, of course, uh, economic indicators are published with uh, a lag. Uh, and so they did not factor in the, the, the improved news flow uh, after we knew that there could be an orderly Brexit. 
what we see for 2020 now is that UK uh, growth will basically be influenced by a tug of war between the, the two opposing uh, forces of the, that residual Brexit uncertainty, as there, there will continue to be stress over the outcome of the negotiation. That is on one side. And on the other side, there will be, uh, of course, the effect of that fiscal stimulus that the UK government is uh, deploying and, and the details of which should be announced in the March uh, budget. As you may have heard, there are uh, plans to uh, boost infrastructure uh, spending, especially uh, directed to the north of England to thank these regions to have a switch to the, uh, to the Conservatives. So this will matter. The calibration of the fiscal stimulus is not so clear at the, at the moment, but it could be something uh, like a bit more than half a point of, uh, of GDP. Uh, and so to speak numbers, uh, now our forecast for UK growth this year is one point, uh, growth, GDP, real GDP growth of 1.1%, that is on par with the uh, euro area, and 1.4% uh, for 2021, which is a bit higher than the euro area. Longer term, we believe that Brexit will indeed, indeed uh, take a toll on British potential growth. Brexit means slightly less uh, demog uh, demographic growth of the labor force. It also means maybe probably slightly less productivity. So British potential growth will be slightly impaired. On the other hand, as it generally remains an economy that is more uh, open to competition innovation than uh, the average EU economies, even though British uh, trend growth is slightly impaired, it will probably be slightly higher, remain slightly higher than uh, the average trend growth of the uh, EU. Thank you very much, Tristan. I, I think something very interesting when you look uh, at uh, the declaration of the British government uh, and the position of the European Commission, and that has fundamentally changed, that we discover three days afterwards that now the UK is really out, that it's really a third-party state, and that everybody is going to negotiate on the basis of its own interests, and that it's not at all méthode communautaire anymore. <laughs> we are entering into a moment where we're clearly having a conversation with a third-party state. Uh, and this is something very complicated, uh, I believe, for European and continental Europeans uh, to realize. And that's probably why there is such a little shock uh, in the assessment of the British declaration of the British declaration today. But for that, Simon, I would like to, to turn on you for one question. Do you believe that there are chances for a no deal in the end? based on this first declaration? So um, uh, my view, I share the view that's just been expressed, the Amundi, Amundi view, which is that essentially I think that in the end uh, the uh, larger probability is that there will be some sort of deal agreed at the end of 2020, but it will be quite a narrow deal. It will be a very different sort of economic relationship from the one that we currently enjoy. And of course, that will entail economic costs for the UK in terms of market access in the European Union. And the British government knows that, and they have said that that is a price that they are prepared to pay in return for what they consider to be the restoration of political sovereignty. My only question there is that I do not think that they have understood yet what that price would entail and what it might mean in terms of disruption for businesses. Uh, and therefore, while I agree that the sort of economic impact on the UK is not going to be dramatic in the short term, I think that pressure will grow on the government as the realities of the consequences of this position become more apparent. 
in, in the United Kingdom. But having said that, I do agree that essentially the more likely outcome is that we will have a deal. However, uh, there clearly is a possibility, residual, that there will be a breakdown of the negotiations, either because the two sides are just too far apart or because on a specific issue like fisheries or something like that, where there is a, you know, there's a lot of emotion involved, um, it, you know, a, an agreement can't be reached. I think that's unlikely to be the case, but I don't think you can discount it completely. And what I would say, by the way, is that in terms of the process of the negotiation, my expectation is that there won't be a lot of substantive progress very early. There will be a lot of positioning on both sides. Um, the negotiating process has to be put in place. The teams have to be built on the UK side. We have to have a ministerial reshuffle as well as the budget that's been mentioned. So there's quite a lot to do. And therefore, if there is going to be a deal, I think the pressure on the process is going to be around the summer and the early autumn to try and get this in place. And do you think that the British government is going to try to give some energy for a negotiation that wouldn't be with the EU but with the US? Because this was something <laughs> that was discussed previously or even announced by uh, the American president. Uh, it was even some kind yeah. of a hook uh, for uh, the British government saying that uh, that could be an option for them in case they exit. So do you think that from the British side there will be a temptation uh, to negotiate in priority with the US that at the same time is under political conditions and moment we, uh, we all know uh, with the first uh, with the launch of the campaign uh, and uh, the first caucus on the Democrat side this week. Well, of course, the whole economic defense of Brexit is that if we are um, reducing our economic relationship with the EU, we're going to have freedom to build uh, countervailing uh, economic relationships and trade relationships elsewhere. And therefore, politically, it is absolutely essential for the British government to be able to say that it is engaging in trade negotiations with other countries, notably the United States. Uh, and therefore, you will see that, and they have already said, and talks have begun, but notice they use the word talks, not negotiations. Talks have begun with the Americans, uh, and that will continue. But, you know, the, I, I, my information is that people around the Prime Minister uh, are very clear, and he is very clear, he understands that it will not be possible to take forward uh, in detail trade negotiations with others until we have more clarity on the relationship with the EU, um, because, of course, other, other countries will want to know what that, what that relationship is going to be. Uh, and therefore, I think there is pragmatism. I suspect there may, another point also, which is highly relevant, of course, is that this is a US presidential election year, and therefore the possibilities of actually doing a significant trade deal with the United States will be inhibited on their side as well. So I don't expect a lot there. But I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't some sort of fairly limited sort of um, uh, uh, agreement reached with the US, which the British government can make a lot of uh, in some sector or other, to demonstrate goodwill and to give a bit of, you know, to give a bit of um, um, political momentum. But that's as far as I would expect it to go. Thank you. I think in our last conversation we discussed a lot on the impact on Brexit uh, on. Uh, 
the rest, the remaining continental Europe and Europe per se. Uh, so I would like to, to spend a few minutes there because uh, we've seen now that uh, the uh, UK representatives uh, have left the European institutions. Uh, we've yeah. seen, it's quite moving by the way, uh, to see uh, the European flag uh, being removed uh, next to the Union Jack uh, in, uh, in Brussels and in a number uh, of uh, and all the British embassies. Um, so now clearly uh, the uh, European institutions are going to continue to work without uh, the uh, UK representatives. Uh, as you were mentioning, they will not participate any longer to the discussion process. What, what could be the impact for the EU? For instance, I, I give you an example. Uh, traditionally, uh, the positioning of the European Union vis-a-vis -vis financial services was considered as being heavily influenced by uh, the British positions. Uh, do you think we can expect that some of very fundamental pieces of European legislations that were the result of a compromise with the UK uh, at some point in time could be now reshuffled, uh, rearranged or challenged because uh, the UK is no longer in anymore? Well, it's interesting, Jean-Jacques, I mean, it's, you know, um, it, on this point about being a third country, I almost feel like saying I can't answer that question anymore because I'm not in, but I won't. But it is, it is an interesting psychological observation. <laughs> <laughs> I have been, indeed. Um, so I would say that I think, first of all, the European Union will seek to sort of close ranks and move forward um, uh, and absorb what is a really, you know, let's face it, it is a very big shock, the United Kingdom leaving the European Union. Uh, and therefore, the natural reaction will be to close ranks and move forward. I think it would, however, be a mistake for the EU not to sort of pause and think through what this really means. Um, and I hope that that, will, that that process will take place, because there is a bit of a risk that the EU sort of tries to sweep it under the carpet, and months and years down the line, the sort of the reality has not been fully absorbed. So that's my first point. On the second point, um, I think that there are some particular areas of policy which it will be important to, uh, to note, to, to look at. Clearly, the United Kingdom wasn't in the Eurozone, and therefore our role in those issues around the Eurozone governance was not critical. But um, it will be very interesting to see where the EU now goes on, for example, um, uh, CMU initiative, Yep. Uh, build, building capital markets. I think the whole set of policy issues around industrial strategy, uh, which the French Commissioner is going to be driving forward, and the relationship of that to competition in the context of strategic uh, autonomy for the European Union, are going to be very interesting areas to focus on in looking at how the EU seeks to position itself um, geopolitically and uh, geoeconomically with the United Kingdom outside. So quite a lot of big questions to be resolved there. Even bigger questions, of course, to be resolved for the United Kingdom. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you very much. I think it's going to be uh, interesting to see if one of the predictions uh, of uh, Hubert Védrine, the foreign minister, uh, French former French minister of foreign affairs, and also the chairman of Harmonies uh, Advisory Board, was it a few months ago, was to say maybe in the context of the Brexit, the EU has come to a point where it cannot really longer further integrate, but it will not probably deteriorate either. And it has come to, 
moment of equilibrium with a focus on some key policies, uh, notably on the Green Deal. We'll, we'll see if that prediction reveals true or not, but I think it's an interesting element to say maybe it's a moment where the EU has come to a level of maturity uh, in uh, on both sides. Um, maybe to come back to, to the market uh, impact uh, of uh, this moment, uh, coming back um, a little bit uh, to you, Jacques, uh, maybe you can uh, explain to us uh, the changes, if any, uh, in your portfolios uh, in terms of allocations in the context of uncertainty and volatility you were discussing before? The way we like to, I'd say, allocate the portfolio today is through a steepening strategy. Uh, and, and, and that's receiving two-year rates and paying and, or shorting the 10-year the uh, to play basically, a, 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 a again, longer dated yields rising more than shorter dated yields or uh, shorter dated yields dropping more than longer dated yields. Now, there are a lot of different uh, forces at play and, and, and there, there's a reason why we like this, this steepener. On, on the one side, you know, the, the BOE uh, had a dovish hold this last time. A lot of market participants were expecting a cut by the Bank of England this time around. Uh, and, and they were they were incited to believe this because there, there was a lot of I'd say communication from different um, members of the uh, the Bank of England staff, uh, most notably uh, Carney himself, who had been out on the wires talking about a risk management technique and how they were close to the lower zero bound. Uh, and when you're close to the lower zero bound, it's better to act preemptively as opposed to react to react uh, I'd say at a later date. Uh, further, Mr. League um, equally was aboding for uh, a, a, a rate cut, at least was releasing dovish comments to, to the market. Tenra Row equally was putting out um, the need to possibly cut rates if, if data were to, to um, I'd say, deteriorate. But, you know, obviously the, the, the Bank of England deferred this cut to a later date. And in fact, you know, at, at, the, uh, at the meeting, there was roughly let's call it one and a half rate cuts priced into the market. That's now sitting at about one rate cut for the summer of this year. Uh, I would just say that deferred is not putting off or I'd say not taking off the possibility of a rate cut. So th th there is a good, there is a strong possibility. And again, this is why we're positioned receiving two year rates that the, the Bank of England uh, does cut rates uh, in, into the, the middle of this year and that we see, I'd say, continued, I'd say, appetite for short-dated bonds. Uh, on the other hand, if we look at longer-dated uh, yields, let's call them the 10-year, uh, someone mentioned earlier about the fiscal program uh, that the, the Johnson government is looking to put forward in the, the 11th of March uh, budget. Uh, initial analysis in the Bank of England itself puts, I'd say, the boost to GDP growth at, at, at about 40 40 basis points. Um, now that that's 40 basis points over the forecasting period, which is you know 2022-2023. Uh, so not a huge fiscal impulse, but nonetheless that fiscal impulse will be financed by an increase in gross issuance uh, it, to the order of about 30 billion. I, I think initial estimates have you know issuance increasing, gross issuance increasing from about 135 to 165 billion sterling. Um, this whole congruence of factors uh, back and forth basically is likely to make the, the, the UK uh, guilt curve steepen 
from the current levels it is today. And just to give you an idea of the, 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 the size of the moves we could possibly anticipate, following the Bank of England's hawkish surprise the other day, um, the spread in between the UK gilt 10-year and the two-year is sitting at about, was sitting at about three and, three and a half basis points. Two, 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 now today it's about two and a half basis points. The UK gilt curve is extremely flat, especially into the belly of the curve, the five and 10-year segments of that curve. So we don't think it offers very much value from a fundamental point of view. And because of this, this issuance uh, uh, and fiscal boost that we talked about, there, there, there is most likely going to be some pressure on, on longer data maturities. If I can allow myself just, I'm cognizant of time, just two more seconds. I, I, I would say that this GB, uh, this guilt position that we have, long on the two year, short on the 10 years, part of a suite of, I'd say, global fixed income strategies we have at our disposal. Uh, the UK fits into a group of, I'd say, countries and yield curves where the belly of the curve is very expensive, uh, such as Canada, equally a similar type of, of, um, of situation where the five and 10 year segments are extraordinarily expensive. The US market where the belly of the curve has significantly outperformed G7 markets on the back of the risk off uh, movement on the back of the, the, the coronavirus we've been having here, uh, which again bodes for a steepening movement. For core European bonds, Japanese bonds, Australian bonds, the, the situation is, is slightly different where we've already had heavy easing. The, the longer end of the curve offers a bit of a, a, bit of a superior carry and roll down uh, type of characteristics. The hunt for yield in some of these, by domestics in some of these markets, will push the curve to continue to flatten further. Uh, so my, my, my point being here is the UK is, is, is part of a, a group of countries where the belly of the curve is very expensive. One of the luxuries of, of managing global fixed interest portfolios is that you not only have, I'd say, these, uh, not these different country idiosyncratic factors that we, we, we've talked about, but you also have different shapes of the yield curve uh, that you can play off against one another. Yeah, so not looking at the UK uh, in isolation. So gentlemen, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I don't think that's the last conversation we have on Brexit. Uh, we'll probably have a number uh, of conversations afterwards. So I'd like to thank you all uh, for your presence at this call. And I would like to leave you on a fundamental question. Is there a coincidence or a correlation between the fact that the UK has exited the EU three days ago and that yesterday the Quinze de France beat up the British team in rugby for the first time in a number of years. Based on this fundamental question, I leave you there. Thank you very much all for your attention. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC dated 21st of April 2004 on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.